So, when we get down to uh, Judges 6 here with Gideon, just a reminder of the situation that Israel is finding themselves in. Repeatedly through the book, you'll see that they have peace and prosperity, they sin, they get in trouble, they cry to God, he sends a deliverer, and then you repeat. In the book, they do it 12 times. And last week, uh, we learned about Deborah, and after Deborah, they had 40 years of peace. But this year, they're, this time, they're going to be oppressed. Let's start reading uh, chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So who are these Midianites? I mean, they're basically a nomadic tribe that lived on the other side of the Jordan. And earlier, under Moses, when they were want, the Israelites were wandering in the desert, they were told to get rid of the Midianites. And yet, they didn't, right? And when God tells you to do something and you don't, that's called sin. So now they're paying the consequences for their sin, decades before. So each year at harvest, these Midianites would come, and they didn't come just to take money like the, like the previous oppressors had done, you know, to take their tribute. They came to ruin Israel. You know, they just came once a year, they'd take everything and they'd go away, and what they didn't take, they would destroy. It says they ravaged the land, they ruined all the crops. I mean, they were out to just destroy Israel and leave them with nothing. And if they took all their food that they could find, you know, Israel would have nothing left. Um, nowhere to get things. I mean, they couldn't go to a grocery store, they couldn't go to a restaurant. If they had no food, they had no food till the next crop. You know, I don't think most of us have faced such a thing, but the uh, closest we came to was toilet paper last year, right? <laughs> if you didn't have toilet paper a spring a year ago, you didn't get it for a while, right? Nowhere to go. So as a result, the Israelites, it says they were impoverished. You know, they'd be becoming destitute. They were probably facing mass starvation if they did not have their crops. So what does Israel do about it? They cried out to the Lord. The same thing they did every time when things got too rough for them. But do we see that they repented of anything? Nope. Do we see that they had any insight into why they were where they were? Nope. And how long did they wait for this? Seven years. You know, and God was patiently waiting seven years to get their attention, you know, letting the Midianites do this. You know, it was a last resort for them, and it should have been much earlier. C.S. Lewis has an interesting quote. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. So I think God was shouting at Israel here, but it took him seven years to hear him, seven years to wake up. So after these seven years, and they cry out to God, let's see what God does, okay? Verse seven. 
When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet, a prophet, who said, this is why the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So in the, most of the previous ones, the previous four times, he sent them a deliverer, you know, a warrior, a king to lead them out of trouble. So here he sends them a prophet. Right? And what does a prophet do? He reminds them of everything God did for them, and then he rebukes them for their sin. He said, you were supposed to obey me, and you decided not to, so it's your own fault where you were. And this shouldn't have been any surprise at all to them. You know, back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, if you look at it later, it's a whole chapter of all the blessings that Israel will get when they obey God and all the curses they'll suffer if they decide not to. And at the end of Joshua's life, he challenged the people to renew their commitment to God and they promised multiple times, multiple times that they would serve the God and God alone. And yet they didn't. And that is sin. So lesson number one that I see from this is there will be consequences to our sin just as the Israelites had here, and if not now, then eventually. You know, repeatedly they suffered consequences for not uh, following God. And I want to make it clear, not all suffering is due to our sin. In fact, much of it isn't, but some is, and it's essentially unnecessary suffering. So I just think when something's going wrong for us, we need to ask the question, is it something we're responsible for or not? You know, and then we have a choice. We can just keep on going, or we can be humble and confess our sin but human nature is kind of proud. We don't really want to do that. I'll admit that. People don't want to admit they're wrong. We're not much different than the Israelites were, but we know God wants us to repent. God wants us to obey, and he wants to bless us. He just, we need to be right with him. So a question I have, you know, are there unconfessed sins that we need to deal with? Are there unconfessed sins that you need to deal with? You know, and is God shouting at us? Is he shouting at us about it because we're not listening? So I'd urge you to consider that. You know, are there things we need to deal with with God? Okay, let's move on. Move on to Gideon's call. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So this angel of the Lord that comes to talk to Midian, Midian doesn't know who it is. It's some messenger coming. But it's thought to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. You know, when Christ came to speak to someone, did it to Moses, 
did it with Abraham, and this thought to be Christ coming to talk. So who is this Gideon guy? That's who we're talking about today. Well, we know he's an Israelite. He tells us he's from the tribe of Manasseh, which was one of Joseph's sons. That's where they came from. And you don't hear much about them. They don't seem to be an important tribe in the Bible. He says, I'm from the weakest clan. And he says, I'm the least in my family, which probably means the youngest, which is the guy that got none of the inheritance. You know, he wasn't the important son, right? So he's basically saying, I am nobody special. Who are you talking to? I'm kind of the nobody here. And it's interesting if we look at what he was doing when he was called, right? It says he was in verse 11. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now in those days when they threshed wheat, they would usually do it way out in the open or up on a hill where the wind would come in a big area and they could drag these sleds with you know, behind oxen and crush all the wheat, then toss it in the air and they'd be in the open where the wind could blow all the chaff away and they'd collect the grain. But here he is in a wine press and a wine press in those days was a small depression they carved out of the rock, usually in a low area, where they'd throw all their grapes and then they'd just stomp on it with their feet to get all the juice and make wine. So instead of being in the wide open, he's in this little depression in the earth. You know, and it says so he could hide, right? So he's trying to hide from the Midianites, whatever food he has, and he probably doesn't have much because you can't put much of a crop in a wine press, right? It's tiny. So I think this tells us something about Gideon's state of mind and probably the rest of Israel. I mean, they're kind of desperate. They're probably feeling pretty helpless, right? Helpless against the Midianites. I've got to save whatever little food I have so I don't starve. And yet what happens while he's, while he's sitting here hiding, right? God comes to him. And what's he call him? You're a mighty warrior. And I think he'd go like that. Who? I mean, who's the guy behind me? Like, I think you got the wrong person. You know, Gideon wasn't looking for God to come and give him a big commission, right? This was a surprise to him. And then God says, I'll be with you, and I'll make your job successful. I'll make you eliminate every single Midianite. Mm -hmm. So how would you respond? What would Gideon say? He says, wow, God tells me to do this. I am going to do it. My faith is so big, I'll just do it. No, he argues, right? He argues with this messenger. He says, I am a little guy. I'm the nobody here. I think you got the wrong person. And then he complains. You know, we see that through uh, verse 13 to 16. He complains. He says, why are we oppressed by the Midianites? God's not with us. God has left us. God has abandoned us. Where's all those signs God showed in the past? I don't think God's anywhere here. So he's not just helpless. He's feeling hopeless, like hopeless. They have no help from God. He's gone. And yet, we'll see later that Gideon did obey this uh, messenger. So something must have intrigued him that he kept on going. He wanted to check them out more. So verse 17. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. So he wants to know whether it's God. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat from an ephah of flour. He made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, and he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. So Gideon's starting to come around. You know, he knew he wasn't anybody special. 
but he wondered if this, this is an important visitor, and uh, so he decides, I'm going to make a deal with him. If I give you an offering, you give me the sign. I want to see, I want to know this is from God. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him at all. Midian's army, we'll see it later on in the chapter, 135,000 soldiers. And 40 years before, in the, in the, when we talked about Deborah, Israel had 10,000 soldiers. So it was kind of like, uh, he's looking at certain death if he listens to this, uh, this messenger. So I don't blame him. He wants to be sure God's really telling him to do it. So he decides to, to make a deal, make an offering, get a sign, a sure sign. And this offering is no little thing. Remember, they were, didn't have much food, right? They were losing all their food to the Midianites. They're starving. So this offering is 16 kilograms of flour. That can make a lot of bread. And a goat. I mean, animals were costly in those days, and they were being raided by the Midianites. But he decides to take this much food and bring it to the visitor. So he obviously thought this was important, and he's serious about it. So we'll see what happens. Verse 20. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands in Oprah of the Abbey Ezraites. So God took this offering and turned it into a sacrifice. So it's now really clear to Gideon this was God. I mean, no, no regular visitor would do that. You don't, and you don't build altars just to any old person. So Gideon knew this was God. So God, has, God had called him, the little guy. So I see a lesson number two here. Lesson number one, there's consequences for our sin sometime, now or later. And lesson number two, God may call for great purposes those that the world looks at as significant. God may call for great purposes those that the world deems insignificant. And Gideon was the little insignificant guy, right? He was helpless, he was hopeless, he's hiding in the wine press. And we'll see in, in uh, the next couple of weeks that he does become a big warrior. He defeats the Midianites, the 135,000 army. And he became the judge and led Israel for 40 years. So God wasn't just looking at who Gideon was at the time. Right? He was looking at what he would become. God sees what we can become, not just who we are right now, not who we are at the time. God sees what we'll become if we decide to obey him and follow him, and he can transform us. He can use us for great things. So before we refuse to do what God asks us to do, I think we need to remember a few things. We need to remember who God is, that the Israelites forgot. We need to remember what God has done for us. We need to trust his power. We need to trust his promise that he'll be with us. And we need to obey him and rely on him. And this has happened throughout history. There's numerous examples. You know, think back to King David. Who was he when he was called, right? He was the youngest boy in the family. In fact, he wasn't even considered worthy to be brought forward, you know, when the, when the dad got his kids together. And he was a shepherd, which was not 
uh, a noble profession at the time. And yet, what'd he do? He's the guy that killed Goliath. He was probably Israel's greatest king. And in more modern times, back in 1820, there was a young girl who was born blind, and 200 years ago, if you were blind from birth, you didn't stand much of a chance. And yet she became a poet and a songwriter and wrote 1,000 poems and about 9,000 hymns. Right? And you know who we're talking about, right? Fanny Crosby. We sing a bunch of her hymns today. She obeyed God, God used her. And then 100 years ago, 1918, the, the first son of a dairy farmer in the States. And he went on to become what some people say was the 20th century's greatest evangelist. That was Billy Graham, because he obeyed God's call. Started off as a kid of a dairy farmer. They followed God's call. They were ordinary little people. And God did great things with them. You know, we're told in 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So God uses regular people. Regular people that we consider insignificant. You know, and God can use all of us. God calls each of us to something, whether it's big or whether it's small. And we just need to decide, are we going to obey him? Or are we going to do what Gideon did? Are we going to make excuses? Are we going to complain why we can't do it? So has God ever asked you to do something that seems far beyond your ability? I'm sure he has for a number of us. I mean, years ago when I was much younger, I was asked to teach an adult Sunday school class at a different church. And there were about 50 people every week and it went on for six months. And that was definitely out of my comfort zone. And it's interesting because out of the whole thing, it wound up with a visit to my MP. It wound up with a petition that he took and he read it in the House of Commons. And uh, that was not on my radar at all when I started. Not at all, and uh, it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do. So God, God calls each of us for something. You know, Some calls are general. They're in his word. They're for all of us. He calls us to love one another, and he tells us what love is, right? Love is be patient, be kind, no jealousy, don't be boastful, don't be proud, don't be rude. He calls us all of that. He calls us to restore broken relationships. He calls us to the Great Commission, both individually and as a as a body, that we're to make disciples. And that one comes with a promise too, just like Gideon had a promise. We have the promise that he'll, he'll be with us to the ends of the earth. You know, some may be specific calls, whether it's volunteering, leading a ministry, inside, outside the church, something else. There's lots of possibilities. But only you know what God's been calling you to do. And only you can decide whether you're gonna obey him or whether you're gonna make excuses like Gideon did. So lesson one was there'll be consequences for our sin. Lesson two, God will call for great purposes those that the world deems insignificant. And lesson three is God is gracious. God is patient and God is merciful with us. 
You know, God was really patient with Gideon, with his excuses, his complaints. And throughout the book of Judges, God is repeatedly merciful and patient with Israel. You know, they were always in trouble because of their own sin. This time he waits seven years, but he waits patiently for them to come back to him. Then he reminded them why they're in trouble, and then he sent their prophet and their deliverer. He was merciful with them, no matter what they were doing. So despite all our hesitancies, our fears, our unfaithfulness, our disobedience, our lack of confidence in God, our unwillingness to follow him, he waits for us to return. He waits for us to trust in him. He doesn't write us off. He doesn't abandon us, you know, even if we deserve it sometimes. So God is gracious, God is patient, and God is merciful with us. And we know that the, the epitome of God's mercies, the high point of his mercy is shown to us by Christ on the cross. You know, we all know that we deserve eternal death due to our sin, and yet he gives us eternal life through Christ's sacrifice for all those that acknowledge him as Christ as Savior and Lord.